Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 14 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me a longtime friend, Aaron Brown. He's the author of Poker Face of Wall Street and Red Blooded Risk. He's also an adjunct professor at NYU. Aaron, it looks like a very nice uh, spot you have there for quarantine. I'm, I'm jealous. It looks really peaceful. It is really nice. You know, there's some research that says humans are most comfortable when they can see some sparse trees so you can spot predators, but uh, you have some protection and water. And that, you know, for millions of years, that's what's put us to sleep, made us happy, made us feel safe. So uh, that's why I picked this spot. And, and this is like your, your reading room slash office I'm envisioning? Actually, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing some, taking the opportunity to do a lot of house cleaning that's maybe five, six years overdue. So this, I moved all this stuff into the bedroom so I can clear out the other rooms and start, you know, doing some refinishing and, uh, and, and cleaning and so on. So this is, this is a view from the bedroom. Yeah, I think everyone's trying to do some of that at this time, some, some organization. I remember I reading... To, to when I was in college, you know, you had a paper due, you cleaned your dorm room. You know, that was just. <laughs> I remember reading Getting Things Done. And he said that most people, their to-do list would take a year if they stopped their life. If, if they wanted to get through their to-do list, it would take a year. Uh, and that sounds about right. And I've always wondered if it's advisable to try to get through your to-do list because one one very successful guy that I knew, he had a piece of advice that I think was really good advice. I, I don't tend to follow it, but the advice was the top five things on my to-do list every day are the things that, that make me successful, that make a lot of money. So I just focus on those top five things and ignore, ignore the other things. And I think it's somewhat good advice because I always find myself uh, focusing on the tertiary activities that maybe... Uh, one, I'm not very good at, and two, are not so important. The, the trouble with that, I mean, that, that sounds good, and, and it may well be right, and the guy was successful, but um, I find that I accumulate lots of things that I probably don't really care very much about that just loom very large. They just kind of drag me down. And when I actually get around and I start doing number, you know, 6 to 20, I find out 10 of them no longer matter, you know, like either I let them go too long or they went away by themselves, whatever. Uh, three or four of them are so easy, I'm just annoyed. Why didn't I do this, you know, a month ago? It took two seconds to actually do it. And, you know, two or three are really hard and I can't do them, so I just toss them off the list. And there's a great feeling to having no to-do list. Absolutely. It's hard to get there. All of it. Then you can sit back and have a drink and not worry about uh, what you're going to do. And you can pick what you want to do. That's, that's my personal happiness. When I'm doing the thing I pick because I feel like doing it right now. I'm happy. When I'm doing stuff because, okay, I got you know, to do the lecture notes for the class and then I got to pay the bills and I do the taxes. Well, we're, I, I think we have the same construction. Uh, thinking back to when we first met, which came first, me reading your book or you reading my book, Broke? I believe what happened was I read the review of your book in the New York Times book review. I read your book, found your email, and emailed you. And then uh, around the same time, I had come up with Broke, a poker novel, and you read that. And then we got together sometime that year. Is that, a, is that right? 
your, your memory is at least equal and probably better than mine. My recollection is I ran across you when I was researching Poker Face of Wall Street um, as a poker player who also had some uh, um, educational credentials. And I was interested in talking to people like that for the book. I thought I contacted you, didn't hear from you, and then, and then heard from you later. Um, but again, you know, I, I sent out maybe, you know, 200 emails when I was researching the book, and I got maybe 20 responses, and, and, and some of them were really good. And by the way, one of the great joys of writing a book is meeting all these people who you... Uh, if so, I would have responded. I believe that you probably had the wrong email address back in the day, but... But, but, um, but that is how I remember it, that New York Times book review. I read the book review. I said, all right, I have to read that book, read the book, then contacted you. And then, and then you read Broke and you liked great it. Great novel, by the way. Really great novel. Thanks. Yeah, I'll have to reread it sometime and see, <laughs> see, if, any of it, see if any of it holds. Um, and then uh, I came to your to your office a couple different times. And I was coming to your office around the time of the uh, financial crisis. I remember um, <clears throat> once, well, in the midst of the financial crisis, and then we had a long meeting at AQR after the financial crisis. And I was, I was hoping, because a, a lot of the viewers of this podcast, they, they are poker players or sports analytics people that have recently become very interested in markets and economics because of turmoil in the markets and, and, and life. And um, I also think, strangely enough, that um, some poker players and daily fantasy people, they, uh, they want to try their, their analytical chops on markets now that now that's, that's the only game in town. So um, I, I was hoping that you could take us back to the financial crisis. Uh, I feel like possibly your understanding would be uh, unequaled. <laughs> so uh, I don't know where you want to start that story, but take us, take us back to those, to those years. Well, I would say, so it's, things started in, let's take January 2007 for a uh, convenient starting point. Um, this is something I actually this, this is almost 10 years ago now. I remember I was, I was cleaning up my office or something, and I came across a newsletter, uh, a financial mortgage newsletter from January 2007. And on the front page, they had every major thing about the financial crisis. They had mortgage delinquencies were, were going up to unprecedented levels. You know, people weren't making the first payments on their mortgage. Huge amounts of fraud were being found. Subprime was particularly... Um, hard hit, um, and uh, you know, and, and you know, financial institutions were over leveraged and undercapitalized. But the headline, the headline was how there was a bidding war on Wall Street because there was only one major um, uh, uh, mortgage originator who wasn't owned by or, or or affiliated with a major financial institution. So as late as January two thousand seven, all the problems were were pretty well known. Yet, people were still, uh, as Chuck Prince said at the time, you know, uh, they were going to keep dancing until the music stopped. Uh, despite knowing full well all of the things that were going to go into this problem, uh, there was a bidding war for mortgage originators who, you know, six months later would be, would be 
Um, so you go into the summer of 2007 and you've got the quant equity crisis. Very uh, dramatic for quants, but really nobody outside of the quant world noticed. Um, a guy named Scott Patterson wrote a book about it, and it was actually a pretty good book, but he has a real unfortunate thing that by the time the book came published, nobody cared about it anymore because there was this much bigger crisis. Uh, fall of 2007 is when we really saw the major market dislocations. Um, it wasn't tremendously bad for markets. You know, stock markets hit a tie in October uh, 2007, but the money markets had frozen up, the repo markets had frozen up, uh, interest rates had, um, yeah, interest rate patterns were, could be arbitrage. There were, there were inconsistencies uh, in, in, in interest rates. So uh, you continue on, you know, Bear Stearns goes in uh, February 2008, and everyone's saying, okay, you know, uh, uh, the Fed is going to rescue, the government's going to rescue anybody. And I'm saying, no, that's exactly the wrong message, because they got so much negative pushback from the rescue of Bear Stearns uh, that they're going to let the next one go. And of course, that happens in September with Lehman, also, you know, AIG, Merrill, all of those go. And so everything hits bottom around December of, of, of 2008. But then things get better very rapidly. Um, we were running formal drawdown control um, um, at AQR. And uh, so we were cutting positions. We cut positions by about a third uh, going into uh, summer um, or coming out of the summer of 2008. And that doesn't sound like a lot. But cutting your losses by a third can be the difference between surviving and not surviving. You know, you cut more through the fall, but then uh, we were putting positions back on in December. Uh, the bottom is somewhere between December and, and April of 2009, and then things go on to have the largest bull market, the longest bull market run in history, which only ended uh, quite recently. So uh, uh, that was our crisis. Um, I think people are hoping for something kind of similar this time, uh, a sharp correction, uh, um, um, bottoms out in a month or two, possibly around the time the virus infections and deaths peak in the United States, and then we rapidly go on with another 12 years or so of uh, spectacular market run. Well, we'll come back to that. and. You, you suggest your viewpoint there, but we're going to come back and revisit that. Uh, stepping back into the crisis time, um, in, this, in the summer of 2007, you had that ugly first couple weeks of August. Ugly for quants, but not, not a big decline in the market. But that was the time that... that in October. It, it probably would have been a bigger decline had countrywide actually gone under because you had countrywide start to tank in the first couple weeks of August, 2007. But then that was sort of erased by bank of America stepping in, but you had a, you had an ugly week. And, and it, my recollection was countrywide was basically half having over the course of one week. And, and you had, Two things come in to change that. That Friday, the Fed did an emergency 
50 base point cut and it was somewhat effective in alleviating pressures. And then that weekend, Bank of America uh, announced a bid for Countrywide. And then kind of things stabilized for August. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. And in fact, for financial firms, the peak year was in May. So financial firms are already declining at this point, not dramatically so. Countrywide back in May, it had to turn over its balance sheet every 36 hours. So you got to think about that. You're, you're, you're a CFO countrywide um, and uh, you're writing mortgages, billions of dollars of mortgages, and, and, and you're securitizing them, you're putting them in warehouse lines and then securitizing them. And if anything interrupts your business for 36 hours, you're, you're insolvent, you're, you're gone. You, know, you have to uh, turn over this stuff um, constantly. So that was always kind of a fragile situation. You know, any kind of hiccup in the repo markets, in the warehouse financing, uh, in the securitization pipeline is going to uh, cause problems. That's what books have would call a tightly coupled uh, system. So in August, my recollection is people were thinking of Countrywide as having had a fragile business model, but it wasn't a question of the fundamental value of their mortgages. Um, uh, it was a question of getting a more secure and stable financing arrangement so that they could you know, survive a, a one or two day hiccup uh, in the money markets. Now, um, you note that in late 2007, markets hit records you basically had a strong fall of 2007. Um, it's interesting to note that fall of 1999 fall of 2007 and then this past fall before uh, the blow up of the past couple months they they were these extreme tops. Uh, did you did you note any similarities or do you have any guesses as to why markets, in, in those three instances, sort of put all worries aside and went straight up? Whenever, whenever people have sort of timing uh, theories, I remember, um, I don't remember if it was Mark Twain or Will Rogers or somebody else said, you know, October is a particularly dangerous month to invest in the stock market, and the other 11 months are January. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it does seem like, uh, you know, we get peaks in the fall, late fall, you know, October or so is, uh, is a big month. Um, and uh, uh, maybe that traces back to the agricultural cycle, you know, from a century, a couple centuries ago. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I would say I was hearing a lot of the stuff in fall of uh, 2019, as I heard in uh, fall of 2007, which is that Markets are at an all-time high. Uh, they've been going up for too long. Um, credit spreads are ridiculous. The, you know, uh, uh, terrible credits. You know, countries that have defaulted every 20 years for the last uh, two centuries or, you know, loans where, where there's virtually no equity. Um, and these things are trading at crazy credit spreads, single-digit credit spreads. Um, but the difference is, in 2007, people hadn't been saying that for very long. In 2007, people were just starting to say, you know, 2007, the major recollection of everybody is the NASDAQ crash of, of 2000 and, and a couple of years after that. So it's only recently that people are starting to say things have been too good for too long. 
in 2019, people have been saying that since 2012. And I don't think there was particularly more, they, those were louder voices in 2019 than they have been for the last seven years. Um, um, yeah, all that stuff is true. You know, it was very hard to justify price earnings ratios, credit spreads. Uh, it was unbelievable that we could have a bull market that, that went on for 12 years. Um, but, you know, it was unbelievable that it went on for 11 years and 10 years, you know. And so uh, I don't think there is any particular presentment of this. On the other hand, I do believe that much of what we're seeing when you have the virus, I think the virus triggered things, they it increased the panic, um, it, you know, means the stock market crashed more sooner than it would have. But a lot of the problems were, you know, the credit problems, you know, the credit problems are not um, from the economic shutdown, slowdown, whatever, uh, caused by the virus. The credit problems are that, you know, more money was lent than was ever going to be repaid. Um, stocks, you know, the stocks are still in very high price earnings ratio territory, even with all the lines uh, uh, we've seen. So I don't think that we can really blame the virus for everything. It's always convenient you know, to, to, to blame the virus. In fact, uh, people were blaming the virus for uh, fourth quarter 2019 earnings uh, being well. It's always convenient to blame something far away beyond your control um, um, for things that happen. I, I would say, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm not sure that 2020 financial market returns for the full year are going to be significantly different than what they were without the virus. Well, that's an interesting take for sure. And I imagine that that relies on the extreme fiscal and monetary stimulus that's going into markets, or, or does that have nothing to do with it? Well, I mean, that's part of it, right? So you, you've got sort of two technical things going on that aren't really fundamental to the economy. You've got the slowdown because people aren't going into work. And uh, you've got the stimulus from people having lots of money. And I'm sort of betting those two things largely offset. You know, the total amount of toilet paper people are going to buy over the next 10 years has not materially changed. Yet the pattern of when they buy it has changed dramatically. Uh, new cars. Nobody's buying a new car today. But, you know, I don't think the total number of new cars sold over the next 10 years has changed. So the fundamental economy is kind of is what it is. Uh, it's, you know, sort of temporarily postponed some things and other things are accelerated, but I don't see any, you know, uh, I don't see any huge net effect um, um, from that. Again, you, know, you, you might get unfortunate uh, distributional effects if that turned out to be true. Uh, distributional, you mean that there are unemployed people today and there will be labor shortages next year? More, more the fact that the, that the monetary stimulus if it does mean that that the end of year uh, stock values and bond values are what they otherwise would have been, the wealthy would be better off as compared to the less wealthy. The crisis, the virus would have hit uh, unequally. Well, it's, it's certainly going to be unequal, right? Some people would be dead. Other people will have, you know, not been infected, will have not lost any income, and uh, will have received you know, benefits uh, from stimulus. I don't think it's a lot of rich, well, okay, and, and here's something else. 
if you're talking about distribution with countries, that's absolutely true. People in rich countries will be much better off than, than people in poor countries. Um, I don't know that it's particularly true that in the United States we'll have more wealth and equality at the end of the year than we would have expected anyway. I suppose it's possible, but um, um, I think the main effect um, um, will, will, will be small of, of the virus itself. Um, that, uh, I, again, I don't know this, and, and we'll never know, you know, because we'll never be able to run the, the run it again under the other circumstances. But when I'm looking at the price changes we're seeing, they're very rational changes. In the 2008 financial crisis, we had a lot of inexplicable things happening. Uh, 1987 crash, we saw a total restructuring of, of uh, relationships of, of financial prices. Now, we're basically seeing the kind of things that a value investor would have predicted anyway. You know, credit spreads go out, uh, uh, you know, price earnings ratios come in. Uh, this probably was baked in before the virus. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And with regard to the virus, before we started, you gave a contrary opinion that New York City will likely not be operational or not be close to the same in the fall, which most, most people, I would say, consensus take is that the fall is probably back to normal. Well, here, here's the problem for New York. Okay, so, so they've got these, you know, massive inf infection numbers, and they're going to peak. And, and, and they're going to go down. Um, but it's, it's, well, if they open it up to international travel, to people coming from all over the country, you know, the virus is not going to be gone at that point. It's not going to be contained throughout the world. Um, if New York City maintains the kind of restrictions that could, uh, that could uh, uh, restrain the spread, uh, it, it, it's going to lose its value. I mean, you look today. Today, the subways in New York are packed. Everybody riding on those subways has made the decision that they're probably going to get the virus, and it's worth it to them to get wherever they, they, they have to go. Um, in that kind of environment, it's very difficult for me to see that you've eradicated it. Now, you may get it down to a reasonable level. You know, the, the, the big promise of the 15-minute test. If there's a 15-minute test, then yes, you know, people should be able to take the test, isolate if they have the virus. I don't think people in New York will. I think if you're on a subway car packed with 200 other people, it's not unreasonable to guess that one of those people either hasn't taken the test or has taken the test but still feels it's more important uh, uh, to travel. If New York shuts down the subways and shuts down the airports and you know checks people for fever at the George Washington Bridge and so on, it's not really New York anymore. So, so you think that in the fall, uh, they're going to basically run the city as they are now and people are just going to stay away because the probability of infection is high or you think they'll, they'll take measures that are more strict? I don't think they will take measures that are more strict. Now, there's two things when we're talking about the fall. First of all, there's a possibility of a resurgence uh, like influenza, and maybe things will die down in the summer and come back in the fall. I'm not really talking about that. I'm just saying that there is going to be residual infection levels in, in most big international cities. You know, just be impossible to get rid of it. The people who are there are going to be the young people who eat, they'll be people who have already had it and think they're immune, 
and there'll be people who are young who figure that, well, if I get it, it'll just be like flu and I can, I can handle that risk. Uh, given all the opportunity of being in a city. You know, the value of being in New York, if you're in certain, you know, young, ambitious person, is tremendous. Plus, many of the people in New York don't really have other places to go. You know, pretty much everybody I know from New York, this is now, and about two weeks ago or more. Um, um, but I also do know that there are lots of people still there, you know, trading financial markets, uh, you know, running the uh, uh, businesses and so forth. So on a slightly different subject, the, the NFL, I've been posing the question to friends of mine who don't mind venturing predictions. Um, what do you think the probability is that the NFL plays a game with fans uh, in the fall? Um, with a full, full on, like full on NFL game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the most likely scenario is the NFL holds a season without fans, purely for television. I don't think that would be a dramatic, you know, loss to the revenue. Um, yes, they lose, you know, all the money from people that come to stadiums and so on, but a lot of And uh, there'll be increased viewership because people have fewer other things to do. Um, uh, I don't know who's going to be advertising on it, but, but yeah, so somebody will be around to advertise. Um, so that would be my number one prediction that that league does. If they're going to open with fans, it's almost got to be to me either that the virus has been completely contained, which, which could happen. I mean, you know, SARS and MERS both pretty much went away on their own. Um, and this virus is very similar to the SARS-1 virus. Um, or there is a testing and isolation regime, you have know, a 15-minute test, get uh, people at the stadium with those infrared. I don't know if you have those in Florida, but up here in the Pike County, you want to go to the supermarket, they give you an infrared thermometer, you know, temperature reading um, for the lecture. Um, they don't show it to you. And my thought is that, you know, if you're at New York, it's on your car, you're driving a BMW, they're going to decide that your temperature is too high. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, I just, I just can't see um, without those kinds of advances, which we don't know yet, or, or even better, a vaccine, that they would open up to fans. Uh, uh, other sports are more difficult. You know, baseball, for example, would be a much bigger loss for baseball to give up the fans. But I think the main reason the NFL has fans in the stadium is to make it part of the show. That they would be, if, if you could run the league on pure economics, you'd just do an all-TV league, and the fans are just part of, you know, like cheerleaders, they're like, you know, uh, uh, halftime shows, they're just they're sort of part of the thing, make it seem more like a sport and less like entertainment. Yeah, so it sounds like your view is maybe 10-15% that they have a game with fans. Uh, yeah, yeah. Call, call, call it 50% games without fans, 10 or 15 with fans, and you know, 30% or so that they uh, cancel the season. It sounds like you have that that view about the virus, but markets, you say, uh, they will finish the year the same whether we had the virus or not. Um, now, does that mean that you were you were relatively pessimistic about markets before the virus because of valuation concerns, and you think they were going to just find their level anyway, or do you think the level is the same? Be 
because the monetary stimulus is, is so aggressive? I've felt for a few years now that um, uh, markets were overvalued to the point where expected returns over the next five and 10 years were much lower than historical averages. So one way you could work out of that is you could just have, you know, five or 10 years of mediocre returns, you know, uh, stock market returns, 2% of inflation, bond market, you know, returns basically uh, matching inflation um, and, and something along those lines. Or you could have a crash and then you could have a crash and then after the crash, you would have a uh, normal expected returns going forward. Uh, I am no good at predicting whether you get the extended period of below average returns or the crash followed by average returns. And I, never, I have no ability to predict the timing of any of that. But um, um, I am modestly confident or, or, or you know, sort of, uh, I don't want to say confidence, the wrong word. I, you know, I think the odds are on your favor if you kind of go with valuation ratios uh, over long periods of time. And the valuation ratios we're seeing now are reasonable valuation ratios. In fact, they're, slightly, they're still somewhat high. Um, so even at the market today, I don't think uh, I, I would bet on below average uh, returns over the next five or 10 years uh, in history, but not as much below average as I would have bet before this uh, crash. And on the subject of monetary interventions and, and, and monetary stimulus, you you have over the years had a, a, a lot of interest in in monetary economics and uh i don't know if you still are a bloomberg columnist but you were for a long time and i noticed that a lot of the columns were about uh bitcoin and alternative coins so i'm wondering if you could go into how your interest in bitcoins originally developed and where it might be now <laughs> well uh, first of all i am uh, still a bloomberg columnist and it's easy to find me um the uh, I, I've actually been interested in alternative currencies since the late 80s or so, um, possibly even earlier. And uh, what you may know about that period is the, the people who were working on this stuff at the time, you know, the uh, cypherpunks and, and, and others, they had a much broader agenda than, you know, using Bitcoin to uh, do transactions. And a lot of fascinating both philosophical and mathematical work. So I've always kind of followed that. I didn't really pay much attention when thinking about it in 2008. It didn't seem, you know, all that much more. There had been previous innovations like DigiCash, for example, much earlier, that seemed much more promising. It seemed like they were really, uh, you know, Bitcoin seemed like a, you know, pure hobbyist fantasy. Um, and then it was in 2011, I hired a web designer from Bulgaria and I wanted to pay her a thousand dollars, sorry, a thousand pounds, a thousand English pounds. She needed pounds because she wanted computer equipment in England. And we figured out that for me to trans, you know, if I gave, if I put out the value of a thousand pounds, she would end up with less than 200 pounds between, you know, transfer fees, exchange fees, Bulgarian regulations, and so on. But then she said to me, look, you know, dude, buy some Bitcoin, send me the Bitcoin. I can use the Bitcoin in London to buy the computer equipment, and I can have a friend bring it back to me and you know, just take it through customs. Um, and I can get the full value of a thousand pounds. 
And, you know, that hit me. Wow. <laughs> that's really, you know, that's incredible value. You know, people are really going to want that. So I went out and I started buying Bitcoin. I did a calculation. I said that I think crypto will be 2% of the world economy. Um, and by comparison, um, uh, the internet is about 7%. So those 2% for crypto seemed reasonable. So I said, I have 2% of my portfolio in crypto. Um, and I've maintained that. Ever since, I haven't changed my 2%, even though, I mean, you know, there's so much uncertainty about things like this that there's really no point in micromanaging it. Um, and that's been very, very good for me because I, you know, I, I, um, um, you know I, I sell when it goes up and I buy when it goes down. So even if it goes to zero tomorrow, I'm well ahead of the game. Um, but, uh, I continue to be interested in, 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 in some of the ideas. Uh, although I admit, none, you know, they are gaining traction and taking off a lot slower than I would have predicted. I mean, there's some really great crypto ideas out there that on paper work great and, uh, and yet just don't seem to generate any enthusiasm. But, you know, once one catches on, perhaps it'll catch fire. And by the way, when I say all of them, I'm really talking about a couple of dozen really good ideas out there. Um, and then, you know, maybe a hundred or so sincere, but kind of optimistic or, 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 or sketchy ideas and hundreds and hundreds of frauds and delusional stuff. Can you tease some of the ones that you think are especially good ideas? Um, I haven't been following it, um, um, lately and, uh, been focusing, um, more on other things, but basically the, 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 there's two bits of value that, that, that uh, the, the you know real fundamental value. One is the network uh, that the currency sets up, and if you wanted to say you know like Telegram for example has a very valuable network. It's never managed to really monetize it, but it uh, um, is it, it, out there. Um, and the other is the technology. You know some of these things have really good technology behind them. Um, I'm thinking that, you know, if I were to start, uh, you know, taking a hard look at my portfolio and just balance, I think, you know, I mean, the virus should be a great thing for crypto, right? Uh, um, the stimulus is, runs risk of massive inflation, massive tax increases, perhaps, you know, getting your wealth, not depending on uh, what the, uh, you know, how much the U.S. dollars, how many, U.S. dollars never expands, not having it depend on, you know, possibility of wealth taxes and things like that should be enormously appealing to me, much more appealing than it was uh, a few months ago. But when you get when you invest in crypto, you're really investing in two things. You're investing in uh, high-tech uh, technology companies, really speculative ones, and you're also investing in, in uh, some sort of currency, you know, something of some exchange value. And, and crypto has been moving up and down like NASDAQ, like small cap NASDAQ stocks, like venture capital stocks. It's been you know, getting hit very hard because in a financial crisis with cost of capital going up, uh, people aren't that interested in funding really high-risk uh, speculative ventures. But, and and that, that makes sense because that is part of the appeal of crypto. But I think that as the dust settles, people are going to get back and start looking at some of the exchange value um, for this. If borders close, if there's more financial oppression, if there's more inflation, you know, uh, uh, crypto should have a lot of, of, 
uh, a value. So I think, you know, it would be, if you're interested in this stuff, I'm not giving specific advice, but I would say make a good hard look at, you know, which currencies are going to be useful in a post-virus uh, world. And if you can't make up your mind, you know, Bitcoin has really proven to be a pretty good index for the uh, sector. And, and my feeling is, however it shakes out, whichever currencies succeed, whichever ideas and companies succeed, I'm talking about the, you know, um, distributed autonomous organizations, not just the currencies and the coins. Um, I think Bitcoin will be the funding currency for those. So therefore, I think that, you know, its value will go up and down as those other crypto ideas succeed. Plus, it does have some value as an exchange currency, although, you know, it's kind of disappointing if you're a Bitcoin fan that it has failed to uh, demonstrate that during the crisis debate. The upcoming halving, uh, are, is that well anticipated by Bitcoin pricing historically? Has it, what is the... Uh... You know, it, it, it was going to be a big event. Okay, so 18 months ago, 12 months ago, we thought it was going to be a big event. Um, but um, uh, mining profits have dropped so much that I don't think it's a constraint anymore. So I don't think that it, 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 um, um, it matters. 18 months ago, the constraint on mining profit was, you know, getting, getting enough new machines, getting enough new electricity and so on. Uh, now we have surplus. And so, you know, it's going to be pushing the string. You mentioned the idea of 2% of your portfolio in uh, Bitcoin. I've, yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've recommended your book, Red Blooded Risk, to poker players that, that have an interest, have a new interest in uh, financial markets. When I'm first explaining it, I say, well, you're used to thinking about things in expected value terms. And that's a fine way to think about things at the poker table or when evaluating like a one-off proposition. But over the long term, it will suit you better to think about things in terms of geometric returns. And uh, I think Aaron's book would be a good place for A, learning to think in terms of geometric returns and B, learning to spot where exponentials are in play and you can, you can use it uh, to your benefit. Uh, am, I, am I giving a justice with this brief description to Red, to red Blooded Risk? Uh, I think it's a, it's a very good transition for someone who is thinking about things in gambling terms to one that needs to think in more sophisticated risk management terms. Yeah, that's, that's what I try to do. And that, that kind of mirrors my own evolution. So, you know, back in the 70s, early 70s, I'm studying quantitative methods. And I'm coming to the conclusion, hey, the stuff they're teaching, nobody would bet a nickel of their own money on it, right? There all these uh, quantitative methods for uh, statistical prediction or, or um, you know, policy. And so I said, I want to go, I want to really find out what works. And the way you find out what works is you go to Las Vegas. If you win money in Las Vegas, it's not because you were played the office politics right or academic politics. It's not because you have some clever math. It's because it really works and people are trying very hard not to give you money. Um, expected value is very valuable for learning 
because, you know, the, the uh, gambling table, the poker table, the blackjack table, sports betting, you get thousands of repetitions that are really relatively independent, you know, every, every day, if you want to. Uh, you can very quickly learn what works and what doesn't with, with fairly high confidence. Um, but then you hit the limit, you know, the hard part about making money uh, in, in any kind of gambling pursuit is getting paid. You know, if you're a successful sports member, it's hard to get people to take you back. It's not impossible. There are ways to do it. But you spend more effort getting people to take your best and pay off on them. Uh, as a poker player, and this is especially true back in the 70s, when casino poker is not, you can't make a lot of money at casino poker, um, um, you have to get invited to games, and you have to have losers pay you. Uh, blackjack, you know, you start winning too much blackjack, they escort you out of the casino. So, uh, you know, you want to take these ideas to a place where you can, you know, uh, increase your stake level with your wins. So, you know, in, in, you know, in, in poker, uh, you can do that for a while, right? You start as a one-two player, as you get good, build up your bankroll, you move to two-five, you know, you can move up and up and up. But, you know, once you hit 100, 200, or 200, 400, or something like that, it gets pretty hard to find games. And the competition gets awfully good as well. So, you know, you want to make a million dollars a year actually playing poker. I'm not talking about being a celebrity and investments on a poker uh, company or something like that. You know, it's just, you know, the hard part, I mean, well, one hard part is you have to be a very, very good player. But even if you're a really great player, it's just hard to find enough games for that kind of income. Whereas financial markets, you know, you get up to a million a year, you get up to 10 million, 100 million. There's really uh, uh, no limit. And then expected value is no longer that important. Expected value matters less than the exponential growth rate you can engender. In the long run, exponential growth trumps any kind of polynomial growth. You know, expected value is kind of a linear growth idea. Even if you get squared growth or cubed growth, growth or quadratic growth, exponential growth will eventually overtake it. Now, on the idea of the 2% of the portfolio in crypto, that that suggests that like you might be an anti-indexing guy for instance because you <laughs> yeah well here's here's the thing you um uh people think that if something is very hard to value there's no point in value it you know they want to value the stuff that's easy to value like an investment group bond um uh, with predictable cash flows. They don't want to, you know, uh, uh, value like a stock with kind of unpredictable cash flows, and they certainly don't want to value uh, crypto. But back in 1995, I did the same thing with the internet. And my guess in 1995 was the internet would be 5% of the economy. So I put 5% of my portfolio in the internet. It actually came out pretty close. You know, 7% is uh, uh, pretty close. But it doesn't matter if let's say you're wrong on the valuation. It doesn't matter because if you have a value in mind, you're always low and selling high. If you buy low and sell high, you make money, even if your valuation turns out to be very wrong in the end. So the less you know about value, the more important it is to pick a value and to invest given that value. Um, um, and then if you guess the valuation right, of course, you're, you're you, even better off. So I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm basically deep down kind of an efficient markets, capital market, capital asset pricing model guy. And I think that, okay, I want to have in my portfolio um, uh, the 
value, I, I want to have the assets in proportion to the value of the world. So if crypto is 2% of the economy, I want 2% of my portfolio in crypto. If real estate is 15%, I want 15% of real estate. Um, it's hard to actually do that because you don't really know what the values are and some things are harder to buy than others, but I keep that in the back of my mind as a simple model. Um, so it's, it's you know, in theory, you know, in, in, in the asset pricing model theory, the assumption is if you buy the market capitalization rated index, you never have to rebalance because as prices go up, you're automatically rebalanced. In the real world, that's very far from true. In the real world, as values go up and down, uh, how that's reflected in actual security prices is complicated and your portfolio will be completely out of balance. If you just go out and buy, uh, you know, the S&P 500 stock and, and some REITs and some, you know, bond funds and so on in rough proportion to the value, you know, a year later, your portfolio will be severely out of balance. And you think there's value in doing the rebalance because you're tending to, uh, as you say, sell high and buy low and capture, I guess, some reversion that happens. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's the old value investing, you know, Mr. Market, you know, Mr. Market is this excitable guy who one day wants to, you know, buy everything from you at 50% more than it's worth. And the next day wants to sell it back to you at half what it's worth. And you're crazy not to take him up on it. I've, I, I don't know if I, if I, if I know anyone else who invests in that concept of the world portfolio, the world market portfolio, having the investable assets spread that wide. It's really more of a thought process because you never really know the numbers. So, so you're guessing about all this stuff. It is a way of focusing your mind on the important things. If you want to decide how much to invest in crypto, don't look at the past action for the last month. Don't look at some future proposed, you know, claim that it's going to be, you know, power will become worthless or something like that. Just think about, can you imagine a world in which, you know, the value of all crypto is 2% of the world? I mean, I think, I think that's pretty plausible. 10%, probably not. Half a percent, 0.1%, not. You know, not very likely. Um, now, what that doesn't mean, I want to be very careful here, is I could be exactly right. Crypto could be 2% of the world economy in 20 years, but every single crypto investment today could be worthless. Um, so that's why you have to keep balancing. That's why you have to keep buying the new ideas as they come up in order to take advantage of this. When I came up with my 5% for the internet, there was really only one publicly available uh, exposure to the internet you could get, and that was Netscape. Well, if you put 5% of your portfolio in Netscape and not done anything, uh, you would have missed out on, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Google, all those. Um, so you had to keep, you know, rebalancing constantly to make sure you were getting new ideas. And you would have been in pets.com, and you would have been in, you know, all the internet failures as well, but you still would have done pretty well. I want to quiz you about monetary economics a little bit. Um... I we didn't go into AQR. Your title there was risk head risk manager, right? Or well, when I was hired, we actually didn't use chief titles. Okay, I was a risk manager, and I was head of financial financial markets research. Um, later on, we started getting titles, and so my my, my title kind of jumped around a little bit. I was chief risk officer for a while, and so on. Um, but I never really thought of myself that way. I thought of myself as okay, my uh, I'm, I'm uh, you know, 
market research and risk. Those are my areas. Market research and risk. And and market research, basically, you're supervising PhDs or other highly educated individuals, and they're trying to come up with strategies that can be thoroughly back-tested, and if they work, maybe they become part of the AQR strategy. Is that about right? Well, that would have been research. And there were people who research. I wasn't involved in that side of research um, directly, although I did sit on, you know, the um, uh, new strategy approvals uh, and, and so forth. No, financial markets research was on things like uh, artificial intelligence, um, uh, high-frequency trading, um, you know, trading operation. You know, how can we work effectively within the markets? So it wasn't about making winning trades. It was about um, uh, executing the trades efficiently. In your job as risk manager, uh, at a time like this, would you spend more time looking at credit markets or equity markets, or would it be about equal? Well, you know, you have people who are doing that, right? There's kind of an idea that the risk manager is looking over everyone's shoulder. You know, you don't trust align risk takers to make the right decisions. You don't hire somebody to look over their shoulder. You fire them and hire somebody you do trust. So as a risk manager, what I'm trying to do is figure out the scenarios that might be um, uh, the scenarios we should plan for. And these are mostly risks that arise beyond the strategy level. So I'm not thinking about, you know, will the uh, credit fund uh, lose a lot of money tomorrow? I'm thinking about, is there an event in the market that will cause our funds to have, you know, unsurmountable problems, you know, margin calls they can't meet, um, um, uh, you know, loss is sufficiently great that our ISDAs get terminated, um, um, that sort of thing. So I'm looking at the plausible extreme scenarios that, that we can do. And trying to get everybody in the firm together to agree on what we're going to do. So, for example, there could be a major credit well, I mean, so far we've seen credit spread blow. We have not seen a huge wave of default. We have seen some defaults in fair sales. Let's say, okay, that's what's going to happen. Let's say you know, all the uh, investment grade, all the investment grade credit are going to fall. And the state and state and local governments, uh, we're going to see some real risk of default. Muni bonds are, are a real um, issue. Maybe the treasury auction fails. Maybe you know $2.2 trillion uh, stimulus is just more than people want to voluntarily lend to the U.S. government. At least you know once we see initial crisis has passed and flight quality has has receded. Um, so that's a scenario. So you kind of figure out, okay, let's you know. I don't want to assume the worst possible case, right? The worst possible case we're all bad, as Keynes might have said, if he even thought about it. Uh, I mean, an asteroid destroys the life on Earth. I want to figure out something enough beyond where our managers are thinking that it highlights factors that are going to come into play in the environment uh, that aren't necessarily in the models and that's the right people's means. Then we get everybody together and say, okay, what are we going to do? You know, at what point will we cut positions? At what point will we shut down a fund? At what point will we reduce leverage? Um, and you make that decision, and you make it when you're calm and when things haven't happened yet. 
And then when things happen, you know, you say, okay, you call a meeting, you say, okay, this, you know, this happened. Um, we decided a month ago when we were all calm that when this happened, we were going to cut positions in half. Does anybody see any reason to deviate from that? And, and that's a productive meeting. Uh, the alternative, if you don't do that, you know, the worst meetings of my career are things where you get everybody in a room, okay, this really bad thing happened, what should we do? And nobody wants to say anything. Nobody wants to be the person who says, you know, hey, we're going to, you know, keep positions on and it's going to blow over. Nobody wants to be the first person to say, well, let's cut positions. Um, everybody kind of looking on. Nobody really, you know, you're, you're not using the useful information. These, these people have tremendously valuable information that they should be sharing with consensus. Um, it's not coming out. If you start instead saying, okay, here was our decision a month ago, and uh, anybody have any reasons to override it, uh, you actually get very productive discussions. And, and you're not necessarily come up with a better decision, but at least whatever happens was a considered risk you took. You know, you had the people in the room, they had the facts, they used their best judgment, and, and honestly, that's all this manager can do. You can't, you know, predict the You can just hope that uh, you get the right people with the right, with the right information to make the decision. Right or wrong, and so um, what were your what were your years in that, including the non-titled years? What, how many years were you at AQR, and what were the years exactly? Ten years. Ten years. I joined in two thousand seven, and I retired in two thousand seventeen. If you were if you were there this year, and I don't know if this would be like a fun year to have that job or not not a fun year to have that job, what? What do you think would be occupying your your mental landscape? Would you be focused on government policy most of all, focused on credit markets, focused on day-to-day -day movements within the equity markets? What do you think would be occupying your, your mind? Well, I have to start by confessing a guilty secret. The most fun I had in my job was always in disasters. Some of my fondest memories, and, and I apologize for this, and then everybody's going to hate me, were the days after 9-11 that you got this huge world-shaking crisis, right? Everybody's like today, everybody's staying home, not, not, at least in New York, everybody was staying home, uh, not for fear of infection, but for fear of uh, terrorism because everything was shut down because the air was uh, polluted. And what do you get to do? You get to make important decisions. You get to, you know, camp out in offices. Our offices were taken over by the emergency people who were in world trade. Um, and so I'm camping out in the corporate offices where I would normally never be allowed to, you know, don't let peons like me hang out in these corporate suite uh, where the CEO and the CFO are. I get to camp out in the office. I get to, you know, pull things together. I actually spent a lot of the days after 9-11 teaching senior executives how to use email and, and their computer. Remember, this is back in uh, um, 2001, so... People aren't quite so computer savvy. But, you know, I was doing whatever it took. You know, you just pitch in and do it. And everybody around you is doing the same thing. Um, I happened to be camping out in the office of the person who was the, the very senior head of corporate travel. You know, this person is not a traveling person, a very senior bank executive um, um, who sort of handles policy and pricing and so on. I'm getting calls from people. And they're saying, I'm stranded in the airport in, you know, Zurich and, and you know, have no money. You know, and it's just fun to, uh, you know, handle things like that compared to your normal day-to-day -day of looking at numbers and going 
meetings and this and that. I had a lot of fun in 2007. Um, I had a lot of fun in 2008. I had a lot of fun, uh, you know, back in, um, yeah, we, we had a series of New Year's in, in the late 90s, you know, the Euro conversion, the Y2K problem, where I spent New Year's Eve, you know, at midnight in the bank, <laughs> hoping that not everything would break at midnight. Um, um, yeah, and actually, that just, those memories are much stronger than my normal day-to-day -day stuff uh, during markets. So I think I would be enjoying myself. It's always fun to have something to do in a crisis. You know, I think it's, it's a little... Uh, um, whatever, demoralizing to just sit at home and, and wait for things to happen. Uh, I kind of get some, you know, satisfaction from writing columns and, and talking to people because um, at least it feels like you're doing something. Um, yeah, I would be, I would rather be in the markets uh, uh, swinging away. Um, I would be mostly looking at what happens beyond this. I would say that I don't think there's a lot of risk management I can do difference over the next couple months. The government is so unpredictable. Uh, it's so unpredictable. You know, you just gotta down, trust your models, keep leverage at levels where you can afford big changes. But I don't think we're giving enough to what the world is going to look like in December. Um, I just wrote a call for Bloomberg on uh, you know what lower state and local pensions going to look like in December. And it's not pretty you know, we can predict there will be a massive uh, uh, crisis because uh, and have lost about a trillion dollars in assets and state and local governments will have, you know, be totally struck, will not be able to make their promised contributions. And uh, I think it could easily be the trigger. Now, granted, this has been coming on for some time, um, that the trigger. Um, there are a lot of other things that if you think about, okay, let's say this, you know, virus plays out more or less as it's bad. What is the world going to look like in December? And you want to be not just, you want to be not just prepared to survive it. You want to be positioning yourself so you profit from it. So uh, the pension, you're referring to state and local government pensions? The, the nine yes. pensions that you mentioned that are in trouble. Okay. And and as you say, these are problems that that uh, Meredith Whitney wrote a book about state and local governments and uh, especially the pension issue in 2010 or 2011. This has been on everyone's radar for a long time, but I think partially because of the leverage in the tax base, especially in important states like California, they, um, they do very well at a time, at a boom time, and they do especially poorly in a year like this. So I think we'll start to have possibly some issues appear out of nowhere. Yeah, well, California lives on capital gains. Sure. It may be a couple of years before they see any of those again. So, uh, uh, um, so, so that could be a huge problem. Illinois is actually, like, New Jersey, for a long time, it's been New Jersey and Kentucky have been in the worst shape, but I think Illinois is in the worst shape in December um, um, just because of the way um, they said, they said and while it's true, this has been looming not just for 10 years, for, for 40 or 50 years. Ever since, you know, back in the 60s, people didn't fund these pensions at all. Ever since people got the idea of funding them, um, but there are some important changes. I mean, first of all, the, uh, the loss in assets. Um, then there's the fact that, and the state and local revenue declines, 
But there's also the fact that some of the reforms since 2008 were basically to cut off new employees from multi-plated benefits. That undermines union solidarity. It used to be that, you know, beginning teachers and retired teachers were all on the same page and they all supported the union and that made them a powerful block. Now, you know, if you're a teacher with less than 10 years experience, you're more, you know, you, you, you know, you, you, you don't want the old system. You don't want them to continue paying out full benefits until you run out of money and then you get nothing. You want your contributions going to a 401k or, or a similar thing, or you want to be put in social security. Um, and I think that's going to be a major problem in a lot of these states. Well, I don't want to say problem. It changes the political calculus. We no longer have a united union. Now, in terms of the federal government figures, in a way, uh, the federal government figures, they've got so much red all over the place that in the scheme of things, the state and local governments maybe aren't the biggest issue in, in that um, perhaps you could help me wrap my, my mind around the figures that we're talking about. In, so in California in 2009, you had a $19 billion deficit. And to some extent, governments have, the state governments by the requirement of running at balance, basically at balance, they haven't had these blowout figures 19 billion if California instead has 40 billion this year, that's sort of a drop in the bucket relative to the red numbers we're talking about federally. Um, it feels like the government could could plug some holes in state government budgets. Um, are you saying that the, the pension losses have been so severe that if the federal government were to get into plugging the, the state budget deficits as well as the pension losses, it would become overwhelming red? Well, it was roughly $2 trillion before the crisis, the, the unfunded liability. And it's going to be $3 trillion now. It would be $3 trillion if we had all the numbers to be So $3 trillion is a lot of money even for the feds. But that's funny money. That doesn't matter. Those are actuarial calculations. And by the way, optimistic actuarial calculations to assume optimistic you know, investment rates and, and, and actuarial projections. Here's what really matters. When does a when does the pension fund funding get so low that people revolt? And my ballpark theory is if total pension assets won't pay five years of fund liabilities, then it's no longer really a pension fund. It means every dollar you're pouring into the fund is just you know getting paid out. It's a pay-as-you-go system. And once people decide something is a pay-as-you-go system, then the whole political calculus changes. Uh, so this is basically what happened in Detroit, uh, Rico, that um, uh, the, the funding got so low that people lost confidence that there really was funding. Nobody wants to, you know, new employees don't want to pay into the system because they know that money is going right out the door to somebody else. The government doesn't want to pay into the system for the same reason. Um, and the you know people collecting those benefits become a smaller and smaller interest group. It also is kind of what happened with Social Security as well. Uh, several times, each time we had a reform that uh, pushed the problem farther. So my scenario is the worst pension funds, probably Illinois, maybe New Jersey, maybe Kentucky. Um, they just can't pay, and they just have to. And that's benefit that's now. 
48 states have either constitutional or some of the kind of extra legal protection for pension benefits. It's incredibly difficult court fight. You know, states can't declare bankruptcy. So there's no court that can obviously adjudicate these things. But some of these states is going to do a Detroit. They're going to fault their debt. They're going to cut pension benefits. An enormous fight. But once one state does it, uh, lots of other states, you know, w- w- you know, it's going to get resolved somehow. Maybe the federal government will come in and help. Uh, maybe, you know, creditors will take most of the hit. Maybe pension beneficiaries will take most of the hit. It's not going to be taxpayers. You know, taxpayers are simply not going to up with money uh, for this. Um, however it's resolved, a lot of other states are going to take a look at it and say, okay, we can walk away from some of our pension, but we can get rid of this nagging problem we've had for a long time. And there'll be a one-time hit, you know, we'll have some strikes, we'll have some fuss and turmoil. But it's better than staggering along, you know, pretending the problem doesn't exist. So this is why I think we may well, this is kind of my, I think the most likely scenario for 2021, that we get one or two really big pension funds, say Illinois and New Jersey, uh, going broke. Um, we see that resolved somehow in a very messy, you know, Detroit-like uh, contentious negotiation. And then when the result of that is seen, a lot of other states say, hey, sign me up for that too. Uh, California, New York, Connecticut, uh, places like that are going to want to do that. Once most states have done it, every state is going to want to. You know, who's going to want to pay your pension benefits if you don't have to? The macroeconomic implications are 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 limited. It's it's really uh, a fairness issue and a political issue in the individual states. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, um, I will say that it and, and there really isn't that much room to for all of the fighting and contention. There's really not that much room. You know, you can't you can't let anyone starve. Okay, so you're going to do what they did with Social Security. You're going to cap benefits. So if you're pulling down 120k a year uh, uh, state or local pension benefit, you're going to get up to 60. Uh, the uh, healthcare benefits, you know, you're going to get a Medicare like plan, possibly even Medicare, um, and and you're going to tax the pension benefits. So you know anybody earning over 60,000 a year who receives a state pension is going to have like a 50% surtax on that pension income. That's really the only political way to solve it. You can't. You know, you're not going to cut, you know, benefits below, you know, so so the people who are living on, you know, $2,000 a month have to live on $1,000 a month. You just can't do that. And you can't pay everybody. So you're going to take it from the higher pensions and the higher income pensioners. Predators are going to take a hit, but they're not going to take too big a hit because the state has to be borrowing. So there'll be like a 10% haircut on municipal creditors. Um, exactly how that happens, I don't know. Uh, the bigger political question if you're trying to predict outcomes is will all of this get rolled into one problem? Will the federal government come in and basically subsidize the least prudent states at the expense of the more prudent ones? Or will the uh, uh, you know will will Illinois and Connecticut and, and New Jersey uh, retirees have to take a bigger hit? And Utah or Wyoming retirees. At the same time as these state pension funds are going into trouble, you do also have a, a lot of uh, local pension funds that could have Orange County-like situations. That's absolutely true. And in fact, it may be the local that, that triggered this. The crisis is triggered by the worst people in the worst position. 
um, but they have to be big enough, right? So, so in Orange County, you know, Orange County is pretty big. Detroit's pretty big. They weren't big enough to really trigger a national uh, uh, issue. But if it's Chicago and New York City and the state of New Jersey and the state of Connecticut, you know, you get those together and you just can't press these and some uh, overall solution. What I tend to do, I tend to look at aggregate numbers. That is very misleading because, you know, when I talk about the uh, Illinois 100% funded, some of the funds in Illinois are 50, 60% funded. Some are 5 and 10% funded. Um, and it's a 5 and 10% starting to uh, the bottom. With regard to the federal deficit situation, just as the pension fund was long known to be a problem, demographics are a driver of this. Uh, demographics are also a driver of long-term federal budgets. It's long, long been known that we were sort of treading uphill from 2020 onward. Now you've got the virus, which is increasing red figures. Um, do you have concerns about the, the federal budget and, and federal government financing and inflation, or, or do you think we'll, we'll muddle through okay? Well, let, let's say, you know, we're, we're going to wake up after this with a hangover. Another one is the federal budget. Now, the $2.2 trillion stimulus doesn't go all to debt. Right. A lot of that is... Um, uh, money that's supposed to come back in. Um, um, a lot of that is not a cash outlay, but, you know, it, yeah, it, it seems we could easily add, between the one trillion we were planning to add to debt anyway, let's say we add two trillion to debt because of uh, the virus. Will that be the trigger where lenders start getting reluctant? Uh, I don't think so. My gut is that again, this is something that will happen someday. Someday, I think lenders will wake up and say we're no longer 100% confident that the U.S. can roll over its debt. And we see these things. Historically, these things happen suddenly. So interest rates are low. Auctions go well. Interest rates are low. Auctions go well. One day, somebody says, gee, maybe the next auction won't go so well, so therefore, I won't bid in this auction. Um, and then once that happens, people say, hey, this auction wasn't so great. You know, I lose faith. And you get like a bank run. And very suddenly. And so we wake up and we see, okay, the auction almost failed and it only succeeded because the Fed came in and bought some stuff, interest rates went up at 8% and all kinds of things. Well, at 8% interest rates, Congress isn't willing to pay the interest on the debt. You know, and so you get this uh, thing. But I don't think this will be the push that makes it happen. And I also think that we could go on for both of our lifetimes without this ever happening. So, so primary, the primary dealers, if they have the capacity to take on bonds at auction, they, they have to do so? Is that? Yes, yeah, and, 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 so, and so, but that's kind of a trick. If you're not really finding willing lenders, right? if, if people are only lending because they're forced to, then the system quickly breaks down. Because the only reason people trust U.S. Treasury debt, no, nobody really expects the U.S. will ever read against debt. Right. It can't, it can't tax enough to spend to cover current spending. What is the chance that we'll find the will to raise taxes to cover all current spending plus enough to repay the debt? I mean, it just isn't plausible. At least you know the next 20, 30 years. 
So no, if nobody expects them to repay the debt, the only reason you lend is you think, well, somebody new will come in and lend them money. Um, the minute you think that's no longer a 99.9% probability, but only a 99% probability, then you know it's a 90% probability, and then you know it's a 60, and then you know it's a 10, and then you know it's a zero. So you tend to get these these sudden stops, and the primary, although the primary dealers are forced to buy at auction if they have the capacity, that's and in we would think that the Fed is fully supporting the primary dealers and will give them all that they want. That's not enough protection. Well, no, I mean, then, then you're just monetizing the debt. Effectively, right, right. once you've monetized your debt, you, you don't have voluntary lenders anymore. Or, or the interest rate gets high enough that Congress isn't willing to pay the interest on the debt. And, you know, with, with, if you just look at the federal budget, if, you know, with a, um, and assume, you know, five or six percent interest rate on the debt, uh, it just breaks down completely. And so at that point, I think Congress would have a negotiated, I would expect a negotiated restructuring. I think Congress would, uh, or you know, negotiators would say, "Okay, we're going to extend all Treasury debt to 30 years at a two percent interest rate." And I don't think lenders would be that unhappy. I mean, they'd yell and scream, right? You got a 12 percent Treasury bond, you're going to be really unhappy to get two percent. If you have a two-year note, you're going to be unhappy it went out for 30 years. But you're, I, th I think the no, those notes would trade pretty close to par, assuming this was combined with some fiscal monetary reforms. And you wouldn't lose that much afforded, and the uncertainty would be gone. So that's kind of my, that's what I think is likely. Interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard that, uh, that contingency introduced. No, I'm not predicting when it will happen. It could never happen. It could not, it could happen, you know, 23 years from now. Or well, Aaron, I've taken 80 minutes of your time. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. And I think, uh, I think my audience, which, as we know, there are a lot of poker players in there. There are a lot of uh, new financial market participants. I think I think they will get quite a lot from this. Yeah, I was just uh, going back to your time at AQR. This I think it was in two thousand seven. Uh, we rented a movie theater and local movie theater to have you come in. You one of the most popular presentations we had, ever had. Uh, uh, a couple hundred people show up and. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. I remember it was about poker and, and gambling and life um, and finance. Um, so thanks for having me. And I uh, hope people got some insight from this podcast. None of this was investment advice. Of course. And I can assure you that there's going to be a lot of Twitter interest in your, in your uh, Bitcoin take. So they might, my, my audience might force a, uh, a second a second episode. We'll have to. We'll have to see. I might. I might be begging you for some more crypto takes later on. All right. Well, maybe by that time I'll have uh, turned my attention to my crypto portfolio. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Aaron.